You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 194. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Great to be back with you now one week into an exciting new year. We are starting with a brief discussion of Canada's hot jobs report and Microsoft's investment in chat GPT. It appears to be a good one. We'll let you know what we think in that regard. I will also answer a listener question in our Your Stock Art Take segment on Cabro Linen, symbol KBL on the TSX, the largest owner and operator of laundry and linen processing facilities in Canada and a market leader for laundry and textile rental services in Scotland and northeast of England. The stock which we have owned in the past and sold a significant profit uh, for our clients is on our monitor list in 2023. And a client asks if now is the time to buy. Brett in our Your Stock Our Take segment will also answer a viewer question on Intel, symbol INTC on the NASDAQ, the world's largest logic chip maker. Intel pays a relatively attractive dividend of 5% after the stock was cut roughly in half over the past year, leading to the question, is this company a value or a value trap? Brett has an answer for you. Will it be the right one? We'll find out. Uh, in, an, in our Finance 101 segment, Brennan her, answers a question that no one was asking. What is an <laughs> FHSA? I'm kidding, of course. We received multiple questions on this new registered account, all from Brennan himself. The FSHA, or tax-free first home savings account, aims to give first-time home builders, buyers, not builders, buyers, the ability to save $40,000 on tax-free basis towards the purchase of a first home in Canada. Brennan will have the details on this. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Aaron, and the Killer Bees, Brennan and Brett, how are you guys doing? Doing well, gentlemen. Yeah, uh, Canada won the uh, the gold for the World Juniors. It was a great it's game. True. Mm-hmm. I know Ryan watched it. Did uh, Brett, Aaron? Did you guys watch the game? I did not. No. <laughs> come on, come on. What kind of Canada spirit is that? I'm busy. The winning you know, goal. Doing research. Well, as you guys <laughs> know, the stock <laughs> recommendations. Fair enough. Be nice as you guys know, in that spend uh, all your time watching TV. As you guys know. Uh, the Canucks are a team that I follow. I hate them, but I follow them. Um, and uh, the winning goal in that game was scored by you just a, like the Canucks uh, when they win draft pick, right? A draft never. pick. So never. <laughs> Can you let me finish? For God's sake, it was scored by a draft pick that the Canucks traded away to win now, and they suck now. But anyways, it was it was just like screwing it in a little farther. Ah, anyways, yep. The Canucks are a nightmare. They are, but uh, it was great to yep. see Connor Bedard, which the Canucks should try to tank for, uh, which they won't, yep. Um, yep. and they'll end up in the murky middle as per usual. But uh, he he was absolutely fabulous in the tournament. Could be a generational like, talent. That's the nice meaty part of the curve, though, right in the middle, right? It's where you like. To oh, see it's amazing! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's there's two things that are hard to do in hockey: be right at the top and be right at the bottom. The Canucks can't do anything that's hard, so they stick in the middle. Very, very yeah. nice. Anyways, let's let's go on to let's talk the world of finance here. Um, we have uh, a couple items that were out news, newsy items this past week. Canada's job report came in hot, and Microsoft's investment in Chat GPT appears to be working out, at least in the short term. Like we talked about in that segment or, or the AI segment, uh, probably going to be a hot sector this week or this month. Could be this week too could be this year is what I'm trying to say. But, um, you know, something to be wary of um, in terms of, you know, the latest TSX venture company that suddenly changes their name to XYZ AI. Uh, 
make sure there's a fundamental business behind that. But it is certainly is going to be an interesting segment of the market to watch over the course of this year. Do we want to look at the jobs report first? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Okay. Well, well, so yeah. Let's do, it. do you do you have a summary of that, Aaron? Do you want to go through that for us? Uh, how the jobs came in? They came in hotter than expected in both Canada and the U.S. Uh, where were the expectations, and where did they come in? And can you can you go over that for us briefly? Who are you asking? You. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know why I'm you're pointing asking at me. You. But anyways, okay. Um, yeah, so I, I don't have the uh, the specific figures right in front of me, but I think that uh, the Canadian jobs came in at about 100,000 um, 100, new jobs in Canada, which was Correct. blew way past expectations. I don't, uh, I don't have the the what the forecast was in front of me right now. Brad, uh, do you I have those what, numbers? What most... Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Brad uh, can go yeah, through no, those I numbers. Yeah. Sure. So um, it was uh, five thousand jobs expected versus one hundred and four thousand. So to say the least, they appeared a quite a bit higher, about twenty one yeah. times higher. For and sure. it's when, when when the government or the federal. The central bank, I should say, is trying to really pull down on inflation. When they're seeing these high numbers, normally this will put pressure on uh, wage inflation, which is something they've been trying to draw back on. Unfortunately, for workers, your wages are wanting to be suppressed by the central bank at this time to slow down inflation. And when they're seeing these high job increases month over month, they're going to have to pull back more, which right now it's wishy-washy. This isn't like an absolute thing when you see job and job growth that they're going to really push on the brakes some more but it does lead to the expectation which they're going to stay the course or even increase interest rates just off this one data point but overall they're most likely just going to stay the course of what they are right now yeah i mean i would say at least it would indicate more likely scenario that they're going to stay the course for longer and it's going to be longer before we actually start to see interest rates come down a little bit um, but I mean, that is the whole point, of course, of increasing interest rates is you want to put the brakes on the economy. And one sign that you're putting the brakes on the on an overheated economy is that it starts to impact the, the employment market, which is just way overheated right now. And one of the one of the causes of inflation, but certainly not not the not the only cause. So it was. Uh, but of course, this is just one month worth of data. So a lot of times what we will see is that one month data is going to come in um, well beyond expectations. So more jobs than we're expected. And we may end up giving those back in the next month or the month after that. But one thing that I found really interesting with the jobs report from a higher level view is just that in the U.S., jobs came in lighter than expected in Canada, heavier. And usually it's you know been the other way around where the U.S. market has been hotter than the Canadian market. So do you have the numbers on the, the U.S. there, Brett? I do in a second. I have to switch that. Uh, they rose by two hundred twenty-three thousand, which was less than expected, but it wasn't like a substantial increase. It depends on the exact analyst, so it's slightly below. So they, I think they're expecting like two fifty thousand, so ten percent or something like that. So it's not like it's a massive change like we were with the Canadian one. Remember, we can use about ten to one comparing the U.S. to Canada. So when Canada's getting a hundred thousand jobs, you would expect if they're the same pace about a million in the U.S. So there's quite a big contrast, which is weird. Normally, we're slow, like Aaron said. We're a bit weaker of economy. Generally, when it comes to these sorts of things, you'll expect a big uptick in the U.S. They'll they'll shoot up past us, and we'll we'll stay out the course. Normally, at a bit less of a lower rate, I should say. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, in the U.S., they're optimistic about that jobs report because that indicates that maybe you know the the Fed is not going to continue to raise. Mm-hmm if they start to see weakness in the job market. But ultimately it comes down not to jobs, it comes down to inflation. Um, high, hot labor market will um, be a net um, positive in terms of increasing inflation. It will, it will be a net increase to inflation, but it in and of itself, I don't think is what's going to move the hand of the Bank of Canada. What I am getting out of this, though, is Aaron's prediction for the year is already wrong. He was uh, stating mm-hmm. that the, the U.S. <laughs> was going to be the ones that they weren't going to cut less likely. And, uh, no, I didn't say that. I said they were going to cut later than Canada. Later, yeah, Canada later was going to cut first because they started the increasing <laughs> a little later. Yeah, I mean, if this continues, then absolutely. But it is also just one month, so we don't want to yeah. we don't want to oh, extrapolate yeah. that out. If you just extrapolate that out, you end up doing what I did with my forecast 
just extrapolating the current trend, which um, is obviously just an absolutely horrid way to put together a forecast. Already wrong one weekend. That's what I'm yeah. getting out of this. <laughs> so Q, next uh, week, cue the uh, well-heeled economist going on BNN now and saying, all we need to quell inflation is more unemployment. So basically, somebody standing there saying, you know, I'm, I'm rich. And what we need is for more of you to become unemployed so we can slow down uh, the inflation rate, which was all over Twitter in the U.S. over the course of last week. Um, uh, with yeah, there there were several you know well-heeled economists and uh, financial spokespeople going on there saying that basically, and everybody saying, oh, so you want you know the average public to lose their jobs so we can control inflation. Well, thank you very much. That's what, you know, a very popular thing to say, but it, it actually misses the point completely. Well, just saying that like the whole point is that the market, the, the jobs market is according to the stats overheated right now. Like there's, there's, there's more jobs than there are people to fill them in most industries. I guess the question is what types of jobs. So the right? idea is not to like for people to necessarily lose their jobs, but essentially for these companies to maybe lose some of their business so that they don't have so many job openings. What do you think? About don't that? say that out loud. Silence? I say, don't say that out okay. loud is what I'd say. Because no, I would say like, there's also a question is where are the jobs coming from? Where were the numbers at this time yeah. last year? Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, we had, if you're comparing this time last year, we had Omicron, there was people out. I mean, they may have not, some people lost their jobs because of those scenarios, but, and, and mm -hmm. where are we today? Like, how are they measuring full employment too? Is something that I would, you know, you know, we could talk about that as well. And oh, then yeah, no, it, absolutely. In terms of like what, like the, the whole methods of determining like what the employment rate is and all of that is, is up for debate completely. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. Well, let's get on to chat GPT and Microsoft's investment okay. there. Did you want to handle this one, Aaron, or should I give it to you? Yeah, for else? sure. Nope. <laughs> nope, nope. This was the one that I was supposed to handle. So this is the one I'll handle. Okay, good. So yeah, so we've talked about chat GPT in a couple of our segments before. Um, and I talked about Microsoft. So chat GPT for um, anybody who's, I guess, essentially been living under a rock the last couple of weeks. This is a what's called a large language model, um, essentially AI that can generate text, summarize text, have um, conversations with people that are very realistic. Um, and it is a technology that was developed by a company called OpenAI. Um, OpenAI was originally a not-for-profit company. Um, and more recently, they've, they've modified their business model, I believe, to be more profit-centric. Um, but in any, in any case, um, ChatGPT was, um, it was released to the, to the uh, public about a month ago, and it absolutely went viral. People were amazed at this technology's capabilities. Um, as I said, you can essentially, you can ask it questions. It'll provide what appear to be amazing answers. Um, you can use it for education. Um, you can use it to write essays. So there's a lot of um, educational institutions. I believe in New York just recently, they said that they were going to ban chat GPT on any kind of um, school computing device because they're worried that students can basically just say, I would write me a book report on such and such a subject and chat GPT will write it you know, certainly better than, you know, your average human could probably write it as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's a major, it's a major talking point right now in terms of what's going to happen, how this is going to change society. Um, and also, you know, in some ways people are maybe giving chat GPT a little bit too much credit as well, which often tends to be the case, but we talked about how would one invest in this. We um, have received some emails and questions from clients about um, whether or not chat GPT or this technology will displace Google um, as the dominant search engine. So that's something that, that is being discussed. Um, you know, there's a long conversation that we can have there. Uh, my basic answer is that when, in a world of disruptive technology changes, the way that, that technology changes so quickly, you can never say what's going to happen over the next, over the next you know, one to five years no company, no industry is necessarily safe. I don't believe that Google um, is under serious threat in any time in the near future from chat GPT. Um, and the reason for that is because um, Google also 
has some very powerful language models as well. Um, their main language model being BERT, which is not as powerful as, as GPT-3, um, but Google is a company with incredible resources and incredible talent. So they would not just lie down and allow their, their um, main business to be taken over. Um, I will also say that the amount of uh, data that Google processes through its indexes for search is, is absolutely massive. Um, chat or GPT-3 is not designed to handle that level of data the way that Google's indexes are. So there's a lot more cost, essentially. I mean, if you're a startup looking at using GPT-3 to, GPT to um, create a search engine, the cost of that relative to Google, if it's going to be um, just a general search engine like Google has, would be, would be astronomical. But this does not mean that it is not a threat. It is absolutely a threat to um, many professions, to many industries, to many business models. And it's also a major opportunity. Um, but in terms of investing in it, um, OpenAI is a private company, so most people can't invest directly in it. But one way you can invest into GPT-3 and OpenAI and any of the future technologies that come from OpenAI likely is through Microsoft, because Microsoft is a company that has made a major investment into OpenAI, about a billion dollars. And there's been articles out saying that, you know, this might have been, this may be one of the best investments that Microsoft has ever made, um, because OpenAI um, essentially... I believe they 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 have a valuation of um, I think it's about thirty billion dollars right now. Like in terms of how much Microsoft owns, the specifics of the investment that they made. Part of it was cash. Part of it was credits on their cloud platform. I I don't have the information in terms of how much of OpenAI they own, or if it's really as simple as that. But one of the things that I think is really um, great about what Microsoft has done is that they are the, they are the preferred partner. Um, for OpenAI. Um, and Microsoft, of course, is the second largest cloud computing platform in the world. They are essentially using OpenAI, they're integrating OpenAI's technology, GPT, into their cloud platform. I think that gives them a competitive advantage against the main competitors, which are Microsoft or Amazon's AWS and uh, Google Cloud Platform. One of the things that Microsoft um, is developing or has developed, although it's not it's not released to the public yet is something called Microsoft Designer, where essentially um, you can design images um, not in the conventional way, but essentially just by putting in a text prompt, telling it what you want, and then it will it will create an image for you. So that has not been released to the public yet, but there's a lot of interesting things there. So the 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 point here is that um, this is this is an amazing technology. I think that in some ways it is being overhyped a little bit. Um, and I'll just give you an example of that. Um, you know, particularly when you think of, of GPT as a search engine, it's not built necessarily to be a search engine. Doesn't mean that it can't do that, but it's it's more it's it's I've heard it more accurately defined as like a, a massive autocomplete. So it's like when you're typing into into your um, into your uh, text message, and you know your your iPhone or your your Android can figure out what. The word is you're trying to type before you you type it. That's essentially what GPT is doing. It's trained on an absolutely massive data set. So if you feed it a prompt, it's basically predicting the text that would come after that. So if you say, you know, write uh, an article on um, on uh, ancient Greek philosophy, it's essentially predicting the text that would come after that. A little bit, quite a bit different than what a search engine works, how a search engine works. But one thing that we really have to be aware of when we're using these types of language models is that they always want to give an answer, but the answer is not necessarily a good one. Uh, most of the time, I think it is pretty good, but I've been looking at some YouTube videos um, where you have essentially like scientists, experts that are sh demonstrating GPT's uh, performance. If say you wanted the technology to write a, a piece of scientific research. And a lot of times it gets information completely wrong. And I had my own experience with this when I was using it. Um, I asked it to provide me with a list of courses that I could look at to get better um, with GPT. And it provided a list of 10 courses with links, titles, and everything. And they looked absolutely fantastic. I was so excited to um, check out these courses, but I had to leave the house and do something. I was thinking the whole time, oh, I'm really interested in looking at these courses to learn more about the technology. I get back, I take one of the links that it provided me, put it in the internet, and alas, this course did not exist. 
So it, uh, it wanted to give me an answer and it gave me an answer that looked very legitimate, but in fact, it really just made up the information. It completely falsified it. So if the information was there and part of its training data set, it would have likely given me the right information. But when the information was not there, it needed to give me an answer. So it just gave me something that looked good. And I think that if you're talking about using this technology for writing, you know, fiction, creative content, no problem at all. But if you're talking about, um, you know, scientific research or, you know, things that are factual, you would need to verify that the information you're getting is in fact true um, and not just part of its autocomplete, but amazing technology. And, you know, one of the things that I'm looking at over the next year, and this is not in any way a prediction, this is really just a, um, a speculation, is that perhaps with this technology coming out to the market, um, it's easy, it's technology that's easy for the average person to use, and it demonstrates the power of artificial intelligence very clearly to the average person. Well, this may rejuvenate interest in the technology sector, which was absolutely hammered in 2022. We've talked a lot about that. Um, nearly every technology company, almost every technology company down. Um, the, the NASDAQ 100, which is technology heavy index, down about 33% for the year. Um, some great companies like the DocuSigns, the Zooms, you know, they're down in like the 70 to 90% range. So it is possible that um, this new technology, and it's not just GPT, there's also text to image technology out there like Midjourney, like Dali 2, that can create like beautiful images just by writing it in a text prompt of what you want. Um, you know, in terms of how this is going to be commercialized, I, I, I think that there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of speculation, but in terms of it just rejuvenating the public's interests in the topic, it, it may result in, in, in more people wanting to get back into technology stock, generally speaking, in 2023. That's not a prediction in any way. Uh, that's just a possibility, something to, to keep an eye on as we get further into the year. Yeah, something funny that Brett ended up doing with one of these text to uh, images was he put in an image of my face and then basically just wrote in, I believe from my understanding, Brennan monkey or something along those lines. And it made me look like a monkey. I mean, even I heard he just wrote in Brennan, but but but, you know, that's something interesting. I know that, Mm -hmm. you know, like Aaron was saying with like chat GPT, it's really good with fiction. I know that um, it ended up, you know, there was somebody that used it to make a, uh, you know, hypothetical or synthetic Steve Jobs interview with a big uh, podcast uh, individual as well, where, you know, it actually spit out a full, you know, script of an interview, which would have been. And it sounded like Steve Jobs as well. It was his voice. Exactly. exactly. And a lot of the stuff were things that I would imagine he would say, but. Exactly. We have to remember that is is not Steve Jobs. Right. It's, it it yeah. can be making up. I just mean from a perspective of, you know, you can't, it looks so real and it mm-hmm. feels so real that I think the big risk is that it's going to trick a lot of people into thinking that it's infallible. Yeah. Um, when in fact it, it, it makes some pretty, pretty clear mistakes and some of them are just factually wrong. Um, and you can go online. If you look around, you can, you can find examples of that. Um, but yeah. still amazing. Absolutely amazing technology. Yeah. For very cool. Things. Yeah. Excellent. Good summary. Now let's move on to look at uh, our Your Stock, Our Take segment. I will take the first one. It's on Kbro Linen Inc., symbol KBL on the TSX. Uh, trades around 28.84. Stock is down 22% over the past year. The market cap, 310 million, pays a dividend 4.27%. What does the company do? They are the largest owner and operator of laundry and linen processing facilities in Canada and a market leader for textile rental services in Scotland and the Northeast of England. Now, let's look at the, in terms of the breakdown of segmented revenues for the nine months of this year in Canada, healthcare, 74.3%, hospitality, 9.2%. So the Canadian division in total of its total revenues over the nine months, 83.5%. In the UK, healthcare is just 3%, hospitality is 13.5%. Total UK division is 16.5. So primary businesses within the Canadian uh, hospitality and healthcare market. Now we're very familiar with Cabro having recommended the business way back in October of 2008 when Brennan was in kindergarten. 
and the shares were at $8.75. In 2011, while well, the company's shares traded at $22.56, we issued a sell uh, rating, sell half near term, and later shifted their stock to a full sell in 2017 when the stock traded at $40. The reason for the rating shift at the time was the business was struggling to achieve its margin targets while it invested for growth. Since then, the stock has slowly declined. It's currently in the $28, $29 range. Uh, with the world reopening, the company's hospitality segment is finally back to pre-pandemic uh, highs or levels. Let's look at the, in terms of the financials for the Q3 of 2022, consolidated revenues increased 19% to 73.63 million. EBITDA though decreased to 11 million from 11.6 in the same period last year. Net earnings were up to 2.5 million from 2.1 in the same period. Uh, the analyst estimates right now, well, if we can look at these for uh, 2022, so at the end of this year, they're on a calendar year, 59 cents earnings per share. Year over year, that's down 27%. It's PE based on that would be around 47. Now, if we look into 2023, there's supposed to be a huge step up, 197% growth in EPS to $1.76. Uh, that would be a, a, a tremendous jump forward. By 2024, the estimate is for $2. Again, if we look to 2024 EPS, uh, that would be, be trading around 14 times earnings, but right now it's 47. So if they leap forward, it can look good. Now, we have talked to management a number of times from our analysis on the company and our conversations with man management in the near term, particularly for next year, these uh, estimates would be aggressive in our opinion. Earnings should take a significant uptick in 2023, but these estimates, as they so often are uh, from the brokerage community, are just too positive in the near term. Our take here would be the business pays a solid dividend yield at 4.27%, but it is not cheap on an earnings basis and it remains leveraged. Cabro can reach management's, if they can reach management's uh, targeted adjusted EBITDA margin of around 18% while generating revenue of about 270 million, which is the estimate for 2023. The business would then trade at about eight times EV to EBITDA. That is below its historic level, but it is, uh, again, still not cheap on an earnings basis, an actual earnings basis. And it is just, you know, it's not massively below. It's about a 10% haircut to it where it's average EV to EBITDA multiple has been over time. We anticipate the company to continue to pursue M&A activity over the next 12 months, continue to monitor its numbers for Q4 and into Q1 to see if management can begin to achieve those margin, margin targets. Uh, Cabro has significant recession resistance, which we like, that strong dividend yield. And the direction of earnings over the course of this year should be very positive. But given the tight labor market and high input costs, the margin recovery recovery will likely be slower than analyst expectations right now. As such, we monitor Cabro closely, but remain on the sidelines with its PE based on next year's earnings in the range of 21 to 25. Um, it looks better going forward at about 14 times next year's earnings. Uh, we'd like to take advantage of maybe over the course of this year, if we see those estimates, which we believe are aggressive, if they're missed and the stock pulls back, uh, it might be an opportunity to buy shares. Right now, we're just monitoring Cabro. It's a good business. We'd like to see them, again, get back to the stated margin targets and produce higher EPS. We think that'll happen probably weighted towards the second half of this year and maybe into 2024. So there may be an opportunity at some point that we are monitoring in Cabro over the course of this year. Yeah, and, and it is it is a good business overall. Uh, it, you, yeah. If you look way back, they were much more healthcare and less hospitality and they've gotten more mm -hmm. into the hospitality business. But we, I mean, we've been following this company, Ryan, you and I, for years. We have seen them miss, you know, their own targets um, quite yeah. frequently, I'd say over the past three, four years. And of course, COVID was part of that because they had, I think they just, they just did a big hospitality acquisition in the UK. Yeah, aggressive right expansion for sure. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was bad timing, but you can't fault them for that necessarily. They couldn't predict, you know, the, the healthcare crisis. Um, but it's for myself, I want to see them get back on a growth track. That's what I'd be looking for. And as you said, even if they do hit those pretty, pretty 
decent targets Aggressive, that analysts yeah. have set out. Yeah, it's not it's not extremely cheap, even if they were no. even if they were to hit yeah. those, they would they would need to exceed them for it to be what I would consider to be a very attractive valuation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it gets down to 12, 14 times earnings and we have growth expectations, expectations going forward because it's recession resilient, it's not completely over levered um, and would probably have deleveraged by that point as well. Um, then it can be very attractive, especially if it's, you know, in the same range, lower, uh, paying a four or 5% dividend or higher. I mean, that would be a company that we'd look at. Uh, you know, you can have a great company. Often it's not trading at very attractive entry price uh, or, or a long-term good investment based on the price it's at right now. Um, we just like to see it a little cheaper and then management start to achieve those margin targets. And I think given the tight labor uh, situation, I think it takes a little bit longer over the course of this year. Maybe we have an opportunity as uh, there's some aggressive targets for the start of this year if they are missed. Now, those aren't targets from management. Those are targets from analysts. So if they're missed, maybe the company takes a step back through no fault of its own in terms of the share price, then we're able to buy what is a good company probably at a more reasonable price. And we get that more margin of safety in a business like this. Yeah. All and right. They also operate in uh, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, which is my hometown. So, you know, that's, they uh, do. that's a reason to buy right there. You see those <laughs> JBL trucks driving to, on to the run. street. Yeah. To run. <laughs> yeah. To run. Yeah. In Prince right, Albert, there. Yeah, yeah, in operate? Prince Albert. So they operate in Quebec City, Montreal, Toronto, Regina, Saskatoon, Prince Albert, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, and Victoria. And then they also that's have some funny because how many people? What's the population of Prince Albert? Forty thousand. Seven. Yeah. It's, yeah, because like you compare, like yeah. that's the only city <laughs> out of that group. When I was not doing the analysis, city. that's what I thought when I saw it. I was like, yeah. what mm. PA? But nah, I guess so. There you go. It's, yep. a uh, it's a sign. It's a sign. Anyways, else, I thought I'd right? throw that. We love <laughs> Prince Albert. Yeah, we do. Yeah. It's a great Me town. Too. I've never yeah. been, but I've heard a no, lot. We've never of been. It. Probably more than I need to. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Now, all right. Let's move on. Brett will answer a viewer question on Intel, um, the world's largest logic chip maker, symbol INTC on the Nasdaq. Brett. All right. Take it away. Let's get right into it. Intel symbol INTC on the Nasdaq is the world's largest logic chip manufacturer. It designs and manufactures microprocessors for the global personal computer and data center markets. Intel is currently trading at $28.85 with a market cap of $123 billion. Intel is currently paying dividends for a yield of 5%. After the stock was roughly cut in half over the past year, it leads to the question, is this value or is it merely a value trap? The company did see a rough 2022, as seen in its share price, but its Q3 revenue fell by 20% year-over-year, year, and its non-GAAP EPS fell from $1.45 to only $0.59. Cents. This can be attributed in part to weakening demand, which obviously they can't control completely across the entire computing market, but revenue for client computing was down 17%, and data and AI was down 27%. So quite significant for a company of this size, as well as costs climbed on top of that, leading to compressed margins from 58.3% in 2021 to only 45.9% in 2022 on a non-GAAP basis. The company is currently trading at a valuation of roughly 15 times its 2023 guided adjusted EPS. And that's a bit higher than the trailing uh, non-GAAP. So if you Google it or on gap basis, you'll, you'll see about a 10 to 11% times, which this is just due to it being trailing and not looking forward. And we're seeing these lower numbers now, which causes a lower valuation when you're looking backwards. The overall community market has fallen, but Intel has failed multiple times over the past few years. For example, the failure to get past 14 nanometer, which they have got past now, but that was probably the biggest stumble they've seen in decades. But more recently, we saw them just fall apart when they're trying to launch their dedicated GPU market. It was just they couldn't launch it on time over and over again. They missed their mark again and again, and then it launched with severe technical complications, to say the least. So the 14 nanometer is now passed. They've moved past around 10 nanometer now, and they're moving to seven this year, hopefully, I should say. But it, during that time, it allowed their competitor AMD, under the, who trades on the same symbol, on the NASDAQ 
to surpass them in many ways or trade blows in many other ways. Intel effectively just rolled out the red carpet the, for the red team of AMD during this time. And that that failure seems to pause. They seem to be trading blows now again. So their 13th generation, which is their current generation, compared to their 10th and 11th generation during these past few years, the 10th and 11th generation of their consumer products were just horrible in price to performance comparison, that, that, which led to AMD taking a large percentage of their market share. It's roughly a 35-65 split right now. It depends on the exact metrics you're using, of course, and exact time frame. And this was from like a 10-90 split. So AMD took significant market share. But some of these leading uh, metrics are starting to show that that's kind of plateauing off. But that's like I said, these metrics are variable in the short term. So until I start to see these kind of stay that way for the long term, I, I would take it with a big grain of salt. But if Intel is able just to hold on to that 65-35 split, they should be able to grow in the long term as the overall market is growing still. Perhaps the most appealing part about Intel is its push into fabrication plants or fabs, which they have been always historically, but they've really started to push into it with a new plan. The company has received multiple subsidies from the US and Germany, as well as some other countries. If they are able to execute on these fabs and compete against the industry leader of TSMC, which is what AMD, NVIDIA, and a few other major competitors in the spaces uh, currently produce on, they could see massive, massive increases in revenue and, of course, earnings. TSMC, for just uh, comparison's sake, is about three times the market cap of Intel at this time. But that is not to say there hasn't been problems already. There's been an article about from two weeks ago that Intel is now um, expecting delays in their Germany plant because they're looking for more subsidies, which they were expected to initially uh, start construction for this plant in 2023 in the first half. But that seems to be pushed back later now as they're looking for more funding. If this becomes another 14 nanometer situation, the company could be in serious trouble if they start to just fund in this cash over and over for these fabs and they get delayed and delayed and delayed, which is what we saw with the 14 nanometer issue. And to the lesser extent, we could see that in the GPU, which they are keeping on for now. There were rumors for quite a while that they're just going to completely drop it or lower it, which they have lowered the exposure to it and their expectations for the market, but they haven't completely dropped it at least at this time. The company is investing significant funds into these fabs, which leads to financial risk, of course. They're, when you put a cash in, large amounts of cash into these huge products, mind you, it leads to can they keep up their dividend as well as their other operations? The current dividend yield is the highest it's ever been by quite a bit. It's at 5%. I looked historically the highest before, which was in the mid-2010s, uh, I think 2014, 2013. It was about 4%. But historically, it's been closer to 2 2.5%. So 5% yield is quite high, to say the least. The company's operating cash flow, which is what really drives dividends and sustainability, it drops substantially over the year. So year to date, this is only up to Q3. They're reporting in about two weeks again. So we'll see some updated numbers, and hopefully they'll look good for the shareholders. It's only $7.7 billion versus $24 billion from the previous year. So obviously, that's a substantial drop. And this substantial drop hit their free cash flow, which is you're operating cash flow minus your investment. So since they're investing in these large fabrication facilities, amongst other things, their free cash flow is expected to be negative for the year, running a deficit of two to four billion. If the company doesn't see an increase in operating cash flow, you'll likely see a cut in dividends. But for now, they can sustain it. But that if they don't increase their cash flow in the next two or three years, you most likely see some sort of a cut. The company has had some cash influx though, because they've been sp they spun off their segment of mobile. Mobile Eye, uh, and they raised about $900 million for themselves, but, and they still own 94% of the company, meaning the company does have an easy divestiture to make if they need to raise capital on a short term. But at this time, they're saying they're want, they want to hold it, which makes sense. Management has as well stated that they want to keep dividend at, this, the, dividend at the current rate, but what management wants and what they can do isn't always the same thing. So in summary... Any potential investors need to take a long-term view for Intel, at very least three years, but more conservatively five years to see this fabrication plan makes take place. And as well, be cautious that dividends might take a pause in growth or even a cut in the worst case scenario. And perhaps the most important risk to consider is the execution risk, as we've seen them stumble quite a few times in, in the last few years. Well done. Yeah, I mean, Intel's really been a perpetual under 
performer in that space going back, I mean, I think, you know, close to a decade here or maybe mm-hmm. beyond that. And and one of the issues is they've just, they've always seemed to kind of miss out on a lot of these big trends. So they missed out on the smart computing trend. Um, they missed out on the GPU trend, graphic processing unit trend for machine learning. And then they're always playing catch up. So they're, they're a major player in the space. I mean, it's not that they're not generating solid revenue and, and generating profitability. That's not the point, but they, they always seem to be behind the innovation curve. And that, um, that allows their competitors to come in and pick up market share. So we, we check in on Intel all the time. Certainly, like you could, devi- you could define it as, as a value play in the technology space. But when technology stocks were you know, rocketing upwards, um, Intel wasn't doing that great. And now that technology stocks have come down, Intel's come down as well. So it's just, it's, it's kind of one of those stories that to me, it's, it's always, it's been more of a value chop. I think that, uh, you know, if you look forward, there should be opportunities for them to grow, but, and the valuation is, you know, not bad. Would you say about 15 times? Yeah, 15 year? times. I mean, that's okay. But, um, you know, given the history of financial performance, just the history of the company, um, I think that there's probably better opportunities in the technology space out there. You'd have to pay a little more for them, but you're getting you're getting a more competitive company with better growth, in my opinion. They did have a shift of pace uh, last year. They did uh, change CEOs, which is nice to see. Um, Pat Gesslinger, I think his name is, uh, who uh, he has a background in uh, tech. He left the company, I think, for about a decade, and then he came back as the CEO. So if they're taking more of a tech uh, way instead of just a pure finance way, I think that's a good thing for the company long term. Like I agree with Aaron, where it's been oh underperforming for years now. They fell behind. So for I kept alluding to the fourteen uh, nanometer issue. They were stuck on fourteen nanometer, which architecture size doesn't mean much these days. It's just a good gauge. But it I, I will add that caveat at that the numbers they quote are pretty meaningless today. But um, they were stuck on that platform for years and years. And they were stuck as well at four cores for consumer processors. And then that's what happened with AMD. They came in and they started to release these high core count products, A12 and then 16. And they effectively removed Intel's uh, enthusiast lineup, which are these high core count products, which they did have, which not many people bought. And they pushed that mark out of the market. And those were very high margin products, which just got removed. They don't even make them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we'll wait and see. I know, like, there is a big in the chip space. There is a big trend to reshoring. So most chips are made in Asia right now. Um, The dominant um, country is Taiwan, with uh, Taiwan Semiconductors being the dominant company. Um, And just for national security issues, now you know, I mean, you don't want all your chips to be made overseas, right? So uh, there's a lot of opportunity for them to pick up some market share in their foundry business. Uh, but I also think that there's other companies that um, like AMD as well, that are trading at more reasonable valuations, even in NVIDIA, different story, but they just tend to be, they tend to be just more ahead of the curve in, in innovation than Intel. Yeah. As far as just looking at the analyst estimates right now, if Intel does what analysts think it will do, um, then you may be buying at an opportune time now, now not over the course of this year, once again, uh, earnings are expected to be flat, uh, basically on a per share basis over the course of this year. But jumping to 2024, you have like a 38 percent, then 2025, a 35. That's what the consensus is right now. But again, as we've been watching, we could have almost had the conversation in terms of earnings the same five years ago. Uh, we would have said maybe not this year for growth. A year out, they're promising tremendous growth at that point. Uh, if it came to fruition, the stock would have been trading at low valuations. Then uh, it's the same thing. Now they have to execute, you know, in terms of yep. growing that yep. that market. And the so number, that, I mean, yeah, if you look at those numbers, the valuation yeah. on on future estimates would look you know, great. Certainly, it doesn't look bad. It looks value, but it's looked value yeah. for ten years. Yeah, it has for quite a while, and the share sector. prices come down yeah. because they haven't yep. really driven per share earnings. Uh, if they can do it. Like you'll you'll look smart probably buying it fourteen times if if a year from now the next two years they do thirty eight and thirty five percent earnings compounded over those two years you'll look very smart but um, it hasn't come to fruition over the past five eight years say for example so we'll continue to watch that now Brennan you want to answer that question that nobody was asking on uh, tax. 
free first home savings accounts, the FHSA, yes. another yes. an acronym that will confuse Canadians. But uh, they're not just running. Yeah, it is, but not this is it could be a first-time home buyer. Yeah, so. Yes, Brett it too. is very relevant to you, and it's very, very relevant to a number of first-time home buyers. It's mm -hmm. actually a good segment, and I'm just bagging on you because it's fun. Thanks. Not Thanks. fun at all. Well, yeah, I'll try not, not to put you guys to sleep, but honestly, looking at uh, the work that I did here, it's trying to it's kind of making me yawn a little bit. Um, so the new tax. What a way to start first. a segment. Yes, I know. I'm really <laughs> engaging, getting everybody sucked into it. That's for sure. Uh, so yeah, the new tax-free first home savings account or FHSA. So essentially Trudeau's federal government moved to launch this new registered account, uh, which aims to help first-time home buyers such as myself uh, purchase a home in Canada. So the FHSA was first proposed in the federal budget of 2022. And on November 4th of 2022, the revised legislation was released as part of Bill C-32 and if passed, the FHSA rules will enter into force on April 1st of 2023. So not too, too far away. So how does the FHSA registered account work? So this new registered account will give prospective first time home buyers the ability to save up to $40,000 on a tax-free basis towards the purchase of a first home in Canada. So like an RRSP, contributions to an FHSA will be tax deductible, but withdrawals to purchase a first home, including uh, from any investment income or growth earned in the account would be non-taxable, like a tax-free savings account, essentially. So we're kind of seeing characteristics of the RRSP as well as the TFSA here. So to open an FHSA, an individual must be a resident of Canada and must be a first-time home buyer, uh, and they must be at least 18 years old. And the annual contribution amount is $8,000 and up to a $40,000 lifetime contribution limit. And like a TFSA, unused annual contribution can be carried forward. So if you, if you contribute less than $8,000 in any given year, you can then contribute any unused uh, amount in a future year. Uh, and in addition to your uh, annual contribution limit of $8,000. Um, so keep in mind, though, that carry forward amounts only start accumulating after an individual actually opens up an FHSA for the first time, which contrasts to uh, the TFSA, as you do not actually need to open a TFSA for the carry forwards to begin accumulating. Um, and an individual can keep their FHSA open for up to 15 years or until the end of the year when they turn 71 years old. So what kind of investments can you hold in an FHSA? Well, anything just like a TFSA or RRSP, essentially, including mutual funds, publicly traded securities, government and corporate bonds, and GICs. And the question, when can you withdraw from an FHSA? So to withdraw, you must be a first-time homebuyer at the time of withdrawal, and you must also have a written agreement to buy or build a qualifying home before October 1st of the following or of the year following the year of withdrawal. And you must intend to occupy that home as your principal place. So if the funds within the FHSA are not used, individuals are able to transfer funds from the FHSA to another FHSA or to an RRSP or a, a RIF, RRIF, uh, all on a tax-free basis. So the one other thing that I wanted to uh, include here to consider is the home buyer's plan, which allows first-time home buyers to withdraw up to $35,000 from an RRSP to buy a first home, will continue to be available, but you will not be permitted to make both an FHSA withdrawal as well as a home buyer plan withdrawal from your RRSP for the same home purchase. So it's one or the other, essentially. So to conclude, the newly proposed FHSA registered account has characteristics of both the RRSP and TFSA and should help Canadians like myself purchase their first home. And, you know, I do think that it is interesting that you cannot use the RRSP's home buyer plan in unison with the FHSA account. But keep in mind, one could potentially transfer the funds from an RRSP to an FHSA on a tax-free basis, though. Uh, so you could do that if you wanted, which maybe I'll do. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I'm still in strategizing mode. But uh, 
anyways, do you guys have any comments on that? You guys are still with me? You're still awake? Huh? Pardon? Barely? What? Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, keep yeah, us yeah. up keep us up to date Brennan. keep us up to date on your progress yeah we'll see great. it might not even be this great. year i'm being patient. no you can take us through um, that journey how are the be markets patient. going out in uh um well in Saskatoon right actually now. ryan told Tell me us about that the I'm index not, <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say ryan said that i can't reference the ind- index as a joke he was obviously joking but uh there is one home that is pretty close to me it's it's pretty small, but it's kind of a turnkey, and it's got a double car garage, and it was listed at I believe three hundred and thirty thousand dollars, and just last week it was reduced to three hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So Ooh. we're starting to see the market, uh, you know, turn a little bit here. But I'm still being patient. Who knows if twenty twenty three will be the year for myself? Um, but yeah, sitting back. Do you guys even get a parking spot? For uh, that price in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a storage locker. No, I, think, I don't maybe. think you could buy anything in Vancouver. I don't think you could yeah. even buy a condo in Vancouver for 330 right oh, now. No. Even yeah. with, and I mean, I don't follow the market very closely, but I mean, I know that it has come down somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong there. I could be wrong. But... Yeah. Yeah. Not in Vancouver for sure. But you're saying even in like, you got to look on the, the fringes of, um, greater vancouver area and i don't even think you'd get anything then for that price but yeah maybe if you went into i was i was thinking vancouver proper but uh yeah no for sure okay well thank you brennan keep your questions coming in that's going to end our show this week uh keep your questions coming into our your stock our take segments uh see if you want to debate an individual stock send that in if you want us to do that um and uh keep smashing the subscribe button on youtube if you're watching us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, we really appreciate that. We'll continue to bring you good content over the course of 2023. Again, as always, I wish you profitable investing and thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.